Welcome to Defenders, the teaching class of Dr. William Lane Craig. Today, The Doctrine of Man, Part 9. For more information and resources from Dr. Craig, go to reasonablefaith.org. We've been looking at the Apostle Paul's uh, uh, doctrine of the body and soul, particularly with respect to the intermediate state of the soul between bodily death and bodily resurrection. And we saw that in Paul's letters, we have evidence that Paul thought of the soul as a freestanding ontological constituent of human beings that can survive the death of the body uh, and be with Christ until the time of the eschatological resurrection. But this is not a doctrine that is peculiar to the Apostle Paul. In addition to Paul's letters, let's look at a couple of other New Testament passages that suggest that we are in fact dealing with an ontological dualism of body and soul. For example, in the teachings of Jesus himself found in Luke chapter 16, verses 19 and following, Luke 16, verses 19 and following, we have Jesus' parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Jesus said, and I quote, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus, full of sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy upon me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner evil things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. Now, it's always risky, I grant, to try to draw doctrine out of a parable, because a parable is meant to teach a central point, and you can't press the circumstantial details of the parable for doctrinal precision. Nevertheless, uh, it does seem clear here that Jesus is assuming the traditional Jewish view of the intermediate state, that when a person dies, that person doesn't simply cease to exist. Rather, 
after bodily death, the souls of the evil and the souls of the righteous are separated from one another, and there is a continued conscious uh, existence in that intermediate state. So Jesus' parable would support a dualism of soul and body. Next, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 to 20. 1 Peter 3, verses 18 to 20. Peter says, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly did not obey when God's patience waited um, in the days of Noah during the building of the ark. Now here, Peter is talking about that state between Christ's death on the cross and his resurrection on Sunday morning. And he says that even though Christ was dead in the flesh, nevertheless, he was alive in the spirit. And in this state, he went and preached to the spirits in prison. Now, who are these spirits in prison? Well, on the basis of texts like 2 Peter 2.4 and Jude 6 and 7, 2 Peter 2.4 and Jude 6 and 7, one might plausibly take them to be the so-called sons of God of Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 to 4, who took as wives um, the daughters of men and sired the Nephilim. Let me read 2 Peter 2.4 and Jude 6 and 7 for this. 2 Peter 2.4, For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to the nether, uh, um, nether uh, gloom to be kept until the judgment, etc., etc., and then in Jude, we have verses 6 and 7 refer to the same thing. And the angels that did not keep their own position, but left their proper dwelling, have been kept by him in eternal chains in the nether gloom until the judgment of the great day. Now in Jude and Second Peter we find the sons of God of Genesis 6, verses 1 to 4, equated with angels, along with additional information concerning the angel's fate, which is not inferable from Genesis 6. Um, specifically, they're being bound by God with chains in the underworld. Uh, and so it might be plausibly thought that these spirits in prison that 1 Peter 3 refers to just are these uh, angelic spirits uh, bound in chains in 
uh, eternal darkness. But are the spirits in prison, in fact, angels? Or are they just as plausibly the wicked human contemporaries of Noah, now deceased? I think the modifying clause in 1 Peter 3, who formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah during the building of the ark, is a much more apt description for Noah's contemporaries than for the angels of Genesis 6 verses 1 to 4, who are not said to have disobeyed God, tried God's patience, or sinned during the building of the ark, as Noah's contemporaries are implied to have done. In the Jewish pseudepigraphal book that we looked at last time, First Enoch, the expression spirits is variously used to refer to human beings, uh, to the Nephilim, and also to angels. So you can find references of the word spirits uh, to human beings, the Nephilim, and to angels in First Enoch. And as we saw last time, in First Enoch, deceased persons now disembodied and awaiting the eschatological resurrection and judgment are frequently referred to as spirits. Um, the, quote, spirits of the righteous, end quote, are separated from, quote, the spirits of men who were not righteous but sinners, end quote, as each awaits their respective fate. Indeed, in the context of the intermediate state, the reference of the word spirits uh, is virtually always to human beings uh, in First Enoch, not to angels. So if we take the spirits in prison to be um, the wicked uh, deceased of Noah's day, um, who did not heed his preaching, then this means that Christ visited not the fallen angels of Genesis 6, verses 1 to 4, but rather the disembodied spirits of people who once lived and um, were then disembodied. Not only are they alive during this intermediate state, but Christ himself exists in this intermediate state uh, between the death and resurrection. So, once again, the assumption, I think, is that this is a real state. Uh, this state of the disembodied dead prior to the resurrection uh, is not simply a metaphor, but an actual state uh, in which Christ himself once existed and in which he went and visited the so-called spirits in prison. Finally, uh, look at Hebrews chapter 12, verses 22 to 23. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 22 to 23. The author says, But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to a judge who is God of all, and 
to the spirits of just men made perfect. Here, uh, he is talking about the saints who have gone to be with Christ and are awaiting the final return of Christ, the resurrection, and the judgment day. And it refers to these glorified saints as, quote, the spirits of just men made perfect, end quote. So here again, we have the notion of a disembodied soul uh, in communion with Christ in a blessed state, waiting until the time of the eschatological resurrection. So, in summary, it seems to me that we have ample biblical grounds in the teaching about the intermediate state um, of the soul for believing that the soul-body-dualistic language in the Scriptures is to be taken seriously, uh, and that we are, in fact, composite entities made up of a soul and a body that are capable of existing independently of each other and therefore are ontologically distinct from each other. In addition to that, I want to point out that the denial of the reality of the soul is not only unbiblical, but I think that it has theological consequences that are extremely serious and indeed undermine all of Christian theology. So let me mention now four such consequences. Number one, notice that God is an unembodied mind. God just is an unembodied soul in the same way that we will become disembodied souls when we die. So if you do not believe that unembodied souls are possible, it's very difficult to see how you can believe in the existence of God because that's exactly what God is. You'll recall I shared that the first time I met uh, Nancy Murphy, uh, who is a professor of theology at Fuller Theological Seminary, at a conference at the University of Notre Dame, she said to me, I'm a materialist. And I was stunned. And I said to her, well, what about God? And she replied, oh, well, I make an exception in God's case. Well, I'm glad that she did make such an exception, but I think that seems a rather ad hoc move on her part, don't you? If God can be an unembodied soul, then why can't there be created souls who are in his image? Number two, free will seems to be impossible without the reality of the soul. Free will seems to be impossible without the reality of the soul. If we are just physical, electrochemical machines, then there isn't any room for free agency to enter in. Everything we do is going to be determined by our physical makeup and the inputs of our five senses, um, what the American philosopher W.V.O. Quine called the irritation of your surfaces um, by the various influences uh, impinging on your nerve endings. These will determine everything 
that you think and do. And without freedom of the will, we are just machines. We are not moral agents who can do good or evil uh, or who can be held responsible by God or who can respond freely to God's love. We would just be automata. So free will, I think, is essential to a Christian view of man, and yet that is undermined if we are just purely physical entities. Peter Van Inwagen, uh, who is another Christian philosopher who is a materialist, recognizes that he has no understanding of how on his materialism we can have libertarian freedom. But Van Inwagen simply says, I know that we do have libertarian freedom, and so I simply affirm it, even though I don't know how to reconcile it with my materialism. Well, again, I'm glad that he affirms the freedom of the will, and hence moral responsibility, but if you can't make sense of free will on a materialist anthropology, then perhaps this ought to lead us to question physicalism or materialism in favor of a body-soul dualism. Number three, the resurrection of the body threatens to reduce to God's creating a replica of you rather than actually raising you from the dead. If you just are your body, and you cease to exist when your body dies and your body is destroyed, say vaporized in an atomic explosion, then when God raises the dead on the judgment day, why is that you rather than just a duplicate of you? What makes that you rather than a replica of you with all of your memories and other things restored. To illustrate, typically materialists would say that what makes uh, this podium, the same podium that was here last Sunday, is its material continuity. There is material continuity between the podium last week and the podium today. But suppose that we were to create out of nothing an exactly similar podium, a duplicate of it, Uh, not in the future, but right now, here on the platform next to it. Just being in a perfectly similar state wouldn't make them the same podium, would it? So, say that the podium were destroyed, and God in the future were to make a podium that looks exactly like it, Uh, it's in exactly the same state, why would it be this podium rather than a duplicate of this podium? Similarly, maybe it's not really you that is raised from the dead. You died and ceased to exist when your body died. But then at the resurrection, God produces a duplicate of you. That is certainly not the biblical doctrine of the resurrection, that God is going to make clones of all of us on the judgment day. So, on the materialistic view, one has really got some explaining to do 
as to why God's production of the similar person on the resurrection day is really you rather than just a duplicate of you. By contrast, on dualism, the soul persists through the death of the body and the intermediate state and thus ensures personal identity with the person who died and the person who then is raised on the judgment day. Finally, number four, the incarnation uh, becomes very difficult, if not impossible, on this view. If human beings are purely material entities, then how could the second person of the Trinity become a man? The doctrine of the incarnation, as we have seen in our section on Christology, is not the doctrine that the second person of the Trinity, the Logos, turned himself into a human being. It is not like the ancient mythological stories of Zeus uh, transforming himself into a bull or a swan. Now, I proposed a model of the incarnation that presupposes that man has an immaterial constituent of his nature which the Logos can stand in for, uh, and so man has this immaterial part. But how the Logos could become flesh or have a human nature is very difficult to understand, I think, on a materialist anthropology. So, in sum, it seems to me that we not only have good biblical grounds for affirming the reality of the soul and the body as distinct, but also that the denial of the soul's reality has some very serious theological consequences which should make anyone reluctant to embrace such a monistic, materialistic anthropology. Any discussion of those points? Okay, Cody. So I haven't read everything by Van and Wagen, obviously, but my understanding of why he thinks free will is a mystery, I haven't really seen him comment on the materialist aspect of his view. He thinks it's more of a mystery because he doesn't understand, he says he doesn't understand agent causation or how free will doesn't devolve into randomness. I mean, he even said in an interview that even if you posit God, like you then have, you're still faced with the mystery of free will. Um, so I, pres- I take from reading all that that he, even if he did believe in a soul, he would still say free will is a mystery. So Yes, yes. You're pro- that, I think you're right about that, and that would hinge on not regarding this immaterial substance as um, an agent, a free moral agent that can make decisions for reasons rather than just random uh, acts of chance. So I think that's a, a good point. Bruce. Uh, a little spillover from last week, but it's related to this. I'm glad you pointed out all these good trichotomous verses. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I, I went through uh, my exhaustive concordance. Uh, not being a detailed person is kind of a just glancing through, but there's many references to soul and spirit being separate. I think they work in tandem, but I think it, it enhances the dualistic nature of man by saying, the spirit is a separate entity. Much the same argument you used against the materialist that says God is spirit. We're made in the image of God. Uh, it makes sense that we also 
have a distinct spirit, even though it's it's in tandem yeah. with our soul. Because, it, like Proverbs says, uh, well, you know, you've got Hebrews four four that says this, the word divides asunder even the soul and the spirit. And if you link the spirit with the breath in the Old Testament, it, there's many many verses that relate to this. But if you take the the idea that uh, uh, like in Proverbs, it says that God's, a man's spirit is God's lamp. This doesn't relate anything to activities of the soul, cognition, volition, uh, emotion on our part. It has a, a presence and a, a significance apart from soulish activities. So I can only find one verse that mentions God having a soul. That's Isaiah 114. So uh, I would say along those lines, we have a stronger argument uh, for the dualistic mm-hmm. outline that you, you, that you made here if we take a trichotomous point of view rather than just yeah. a straight dualist um, point of view. Obviously, the burden of the lesson is to refute the monistic, materialistic right. view of human beings that is popular today. I see the distinction between dichotomy and trichotomy as very much a secondary issue that is less fundamental. And I'll say something about it more later on. But notice that one of the things that I tried to emphasize was that the appeal of the argument I've given is not just to the fact that the scriptures use body-soul language. Because even though it uses body-soul language, that could be figurative speech or relational speech and not really ontological. But it's when you come to the intermediate state that it seems to become clear that we are dealing here with real ontological differences. And that's not what I find with regard to spirit. I think that although the scripture often speaks about Well, as we saw, the spirits of just men made perfect or the spirits in prison, that there isn't any attempt to differentiate between spirit and soul in those kinds of cases. Um, That just seems to be the disembodied person that might variously be referred to as spirit or soul or even the spirits of the souls. And so the trichotomous defender, I think, is going to need to give us some reason to take this language in a weighty, ontological way rather than um, as relational or figurative or some such way. And if he, if he has nothing better than just the linguistic evidence, then you're going to wind up being committed things like a mind and a heart as well, because we're also commanded to love the Lord with all our heart or with all our mind. And so you begin to proliferate entities uh, in the human person or human nature. And so for that reason, I'm not persuaded that um, we should multiply entities in that way. I think it's better to just say there is an immaterial part of human beings that can be variously referred to as as soul, spirit, mind, heart, things of that sort. Um, I think that we'll say something more about that, but that would be my response at this point. Yes, Cash. So 
I might be misunderstanding the materialist point of view, but they would believe that everything that exists has some interaction of matter, right? And that there's not something that exists other than material things made of atoms. But they would believe that our mind would be, uh, our thoughts would be the result of some sort of interaction of matter, right? Yes. So why would being a materialist preclude the idea of free will? Well, just because that, it seems to me what you just said explains why. Because the, your mental life is the product of various brain states, um, firings of various neurons that would the, in your uh, brain, and those be are explicable okay. in terms of prior physical <clears throat> brain states. And so the mental states, as we'll see next time, have no causal effect upon anything. They just sort of float along on, the, on these brain states, which are fully explicable on a physical basis. So it seems to preclude any uh, freedom of the will on, on our part. Okay, thanks. Uh-huh. Jonathan. So I was thinking about... This is working? Okay. I was thinking about um, your thoughts on uh, Van Inwagen's um, view, and I was coming... I was starting to think that maybe with respect to free will, it's worth noting that the the phrase free will is kind of like the word evolution. It can be expanded Ah. and contracted upon. So I was thinking of John Martin Fisher's view of free will. So he thinks he's he's what's called a semi-compatibilist, where he thinks, um, you know, maybe free will and determinism are compatible, but maybe moral responsibility and determinism, maybe maybe they're not. I might have that backwards, but... um, Uh But on his view, all you need to do is be responsive and receptive to reasons in a way. And I don't think that there's anything about materialism that would include that sort of reason responsiveness or reason receptiveness that Fisher includes. Um, And then moreover, it seems that... Could I just Mm -hmm. jump in there? So on, on this view, if someone gives you reasons for doing something and you're persuaded by that that would count as a free decision on your part, even if physical causes are what produced your assent to those arguments that were offered you. You, you, It would be entirely determined and um, caused by purely physical states. I'm going to give a tentative yes. Yeah. Um, but he gives out, he gives these very nuanced criteria for what counts reasons, okay. responsive, reasons, receptiveness, and like possible world semantics yeah. and stuff like that. Um, but then the second thing that I wanted to note um, was that, well, maybe you could get around this by adopting a certain view of moral responsibility. Like we think there are a few ways to think about moral responsibility. For example, there's uh, an accountability view which says, well, you're morally responsible if it's fitting that you give an account for that action or omission. And then there are ledger views that say, for example, um, a person is morally responsible. Uh, it, it thinks of free um, moral responsibility on the analogy of a moral ledger. So if you do something bad or, or something good, it's to say, well, this person got a good grade, a good uh-huh. mark, and then this person got a bad mark. I'm thinking maybe if you adopt a sort of ledger view of moral responsibility with saying, well, this person received a good mark, this person received a bad mark, you can sort of circumvent these accountability views yeah. that it's fitting that I give an account for something or that I'm the appropriate subject of moral praise or blame. Of course, one can always redefine terms and especially weaken them so as to make them 
compatible with determinism and no free will. But then the question will be the adequacy of those new concepts. And it seems to me that what you've described as a sort of moral ledger view just isn't adequate to what we would talk about when we mean moral responsibility. And I'm thinking here particularly liability to punishment um, or worthiness of, of moral praise. That's got to be more, I think, than just a kind of uh, ledger uh, as you explained it. Okay. All right. Thank you. All right. Time for one more, perhaps. So theoretically, if you were a convinced atheist, and would you be a firm, hard determinist? And if so, how could you live that way? Yeah. You, now, you're asking me, right? I, I think that the plausibility of body-soul dualism is so strong, even apart from biblical teaching, that it would be better for the atheist to be a dualist, even though he's an atheist, and just say that there is this mysterious mental substance that is connected somehow with my body that is free and therefore morally accountable, um, but just deny that it's the result of some sort of transcendent mind that has created us. Um, but I think to embrace determinism and deny moral accountability would just be, well, as you say, an impossible way to live. I, I remember talking to one philosopher at a conference in Slovenia, and he said to me over the dinner table, well, he says, I, I've kind of come to the conclusion that I think that determinism is true. And I looked at him with horror, and I said, that's awful. And he kind of looked surprised at me. That, Why would I react in this way? And I said, you know, if that's true, I said, what are we even doing philosophy for? Let, let's just quit and become farmers and, you know, <laughs> live off the land or something. But I just don't see any reason to engage in anything. It's an unlivable view. Of course, if you're determined to do it, I you don't have much choice. But I guess my, my advice to the atheist would be, be a dualist, even though you're an atheist. All right, let's uh, go ahead and close now. Oh, Father, we're thankful that we're not confronted with choices like that. And uh, thank you that you have created us in your image and likeness. Um, that we might know you and uh, might enjoy eternal life with you. Help us to live out the truth of this faith this week through Christ our Lord. Amen. The copyright for the preceding material is held by Dr. William Lane Craig. For more, go to reasonablefaith.org.